The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort and Carl Quintanilla. Today, Lyft sells off its self-driving unit to Toyota. We will dig into why with the co-founder this hour. Plus, Adobe partners with FedEx for free two-day shipping. CEO Shantanu Narayan is with us. And later, Disney's strategy for ESPN+. Plus, Adding new exclusive content, we will speak to ESPN chairman Jimmy Patero. Carl. Guys, we've got the major indices in the red. Tesla is a big story today, falling despite uh, auto revenue up 75. A lot to get to in Tesla. Ahead of two big earnings after the bell tonight with both Alphabet and Microsoft reporting, John. And what we know is a monster week for tech. Yeah, uh, the most important thing in tech today is mobility as tech leans into logistics, delivering the right things at the right price. We just told you about Lyft selling off its self-driving unit to Toyota as the world of self-driving cars shifts. DoorDash, meanwhile, with news today is that it's changing the way it charges restaurants for delivery. They can pay 0% commissions, 15, 25, or 30. Now, the stock is up nearly 5%. And Adobe announcing a major partnership with FedEx, a way for retailers to shift their business online and differentiate themselves versus Amazon. All this brings us back to mobility and EV play. Tesla, a big mover of the day. The stock down roughly 4%. Uh, Deirdre, I, you know, we were talking about this yesterday. Hard to know exactly what Tesla's moving based on. It's more than just electric vehicles. It's a play on a shift in, in energy globally. And boy, has it had quite a run. What about AI, right, John? We had comments from Musk last night saying, think of us as an AI robotics company as much as an auto or energy company. I thought that was interesting. And that's definitely something for the bulls, Carl, that belief that Elon Musk is building for the long term. And that theme of artificial intelligence robotics certainly plays into that some of the real world technology that Tesla has had to solve for itself. Yep. Uh, Ron Barron, of course, maybe Tesla's most famous investor, uh, has a letter out this morning, guys, talking about how he bought at 43 a share, uh, split adjusted from 2014 to 2016. Shares did very little for five years and then boom, up 700 percent last year. And in the words of Ron Barron today, we believe it will at least triple again in the next 10 years. And, John, a lot of that belief is going to be centered around the idea that it's not just an auto company. Yeah. Uh, Larry Ellison giving him a run for his money there as far as uh, famous uh, Tesla investors, though. But plenty of investors <laughs> watching Tesla, Carl, either way. Uh, guys, brings us to our first guest this morning. Uh, talk about Tesla earnings and all the rest. Dan Niles of the Satori Fund joins us today. Dan, we always love getting your take. It's great to see you again. See you, too, Carl. 
Um, all right. So I think the lead here, if it's Tesla, may be that you think valuation is a little too high to get interested. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really all it is. I mean, Elon Musk is arguably the Thomas Edison of our generation. He's forced the car industry to get into electric vehicles, kicking and screaming. But if you look at the valuation of the company, you know, it's $49 billion in uh, revenues, and it's trading at about $680 billion in market cap. You look at Volkswagen, and it's about $250 billion in revenues, and it's trading at about $130 billion in market cap. So Tesla's 14 times EV to sales. Volkswagen's about 0.5. And in full disclosure, we're short the stock. We were shorted into the print yesterday. Um, but we love EV. I mean, our, one of our top five picks for this year uh, coming into the year is Magna International. It traded a 13 PE, not an EV to sales, but a PE ratio. And that stock's up close to 40% this year. So that's, you know, and they have relationships Magna does with Fisker and Waymo, which is uh, Google's autonomous division, as well as relationships with China and Korea EV manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So we pref we love EV. We just want to participate in a, you know, value-centric way that will do well. Right. But Tesla is not a value stock. And, you know, you don't buy it based on fundamentals, Dan. It's the whole long term story, right, that it's an energy company. It's potentially an artificial intelligence company. So on those terms, do you buy Tesla or do you still short it? Are you looking at it only as an AV company? No, I'm looking at it as all of those things. But, you know, you've got other plays on it where you can get much better value. I mean, if you want artificial intelligence or cloud, et cetera. I mean, you can look at Google, which is our, our top pick in big cap tech. Um, you know, Google trades at a you know, high 20 PE, and they've still got a ton of growth in front of them. They've got an autonomous driving division as well in there. They've got AI, they've got cloud um, as well. So, you know, for us, it's about risk versus reward. And the analogy I'd make to you is, and we haven't gone into this yet, but, you know, I do believe later this year, the Fed will start to taper. The Fed starts to taper, that's going to be a problem for multiples in this market. And the analogy I would draw is you can go back to Amazon at the last bubble peak in 2000. Amazon had revenues of $1.6 billion in 1999. Stock was at $160 a share. The revenues doubled over the next two years to $3.1 billion by 2001. The stock went from 106 to 6 while revenues doubled. And that had nothing to do with their prospects into the future. It just had to do with the starting point, which was the stock was just highly overvalued. And that was it. And so that's the only argument we're making for Tesla right now. You look at Ford, GM, Volkswagen, they're up 40 to 60 percent this year. And um, isn't that, why? Dan, isn't that what it comes down to? I mean, technically, you're short Tesla, but all the reasons to short Tesla at 700 were reasons to short it at 100 a year ago, right? Really what you're saying, it sounds like, is you think that the environment for risky stocks, the environment for risk, the risk on trade is going to shift uh, with the Fed taper. Well, it's all of that, really, John. I mean, if you look at Volkswagen, one of the reasons it's up 60 percent this year is they talked about, you know, they're going to uh, have six battery factories um, this year that they're starting to build. Um, they also talked about getting to, I think it was by... Um, 50% EV sales by 2030, if I remember correctly. Um, and they're picking up market share in EV. So I think there's different environments that are good for different stocks. If you're in an environment like you were last year, where the Fed balance sheet was up 77% last year, 
um, then that's a great time to be buying, you know, non-fungible tokens and, you know, trading cards and whatever you want to buy that's sexy, that's got growth that's huge 20 years in the future. If you're in an environment, Bank of Canada is shrinking their balance sheet starting this week. It's the first of the G7 countries to start shrinking their balance sheet or start tapering. Um, there's 13 central banks that have raised rates already. Russia's done it twice. Um, so if you're in that kind of environment, it's very different than the one that we were talking about before. Money supply is up 27% year over year. The peak during the global financial crisis was 10%. So you're coming, you're backing off a lot of those measures. And as you rightly pointed out, John, it's, it's the environment to some degree. And in this environment, high valuation stocks, you need to be careful of. Uh, you're right about um, Bank of Canada. We're going to find out more about how our own central bank feels about that notion of tapering uh, tomorrow and in the next couple of months. Dan, widening the aperture a little bit, it does sound like um, this chip shortage, which Musk talked about last night in some detail, is making you also reticent about what? Is it, is it semis only or hardware in general or something even larger than that? No, I mean, I think, you know, expectations are really high, obviously, into this earnings season. You're going to have the best GDP growth this year since 1984. You're going to have the best global GDP growth at 6% since 1976. So, you know, demand's been much better than anybody thought in this pandemic due to all that stimulus we just talked about. Um, but what's happened is there's been a lot of shortages. And with stocks up this much going into that, you know, you need to be careful about a sell the news reaction. I mean, the last two weeks, semiconductor stocks have been down 3% with the market up. Um, you know, Bitcoin has sold off. Electric vehicle companies outside of Tesla are down, you know, 10 to 20%. Um, solar is down, I think, 3% over the last two weeks. And so, you know, it's just a matter of expectations are very, very high. The banks, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan is one of our top uh, five picks for this year. They all sold off on earnings. Um, we started buying some of those back after we hedged them out uh, going into earnings. Um, so I think you're in sort of a very tricky environment. And with semiconductors, you know, there's shortages in most areas, specifically automotive. And I think you just need to see how stocks react to some of that. And it could be very much a you miss with your stock up this much, you're going to get hit. And so you just need to be careful. with Right. Those. Finally, Dan, I, I, you know, I love to remind our viewers every time you're on that we had you on in March of last year. The pandemic was really just days old. And you said that your base case was that all Disney domestic parks shut down. And as you said, then that's when I get interested. I'm wondering how you feel about the reopening trade in general now, whether it's been priced in and whether the problems that we're seeing in Latin America and India haunt you and make you think that maybe this thing, this this problem that we faced for a year will come back to haunt us, even to a slight degree. I'm glad you brought that up, Carl. I mean, my view is the coronavirus is going to be like the flu. And I've said this before, where we're going to need to go in every year and get a shot. We're just going to have to deal with the fact, unfortunately, with the common flu, I think there's about 30 to 40,000 people that die every year. And unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with that. For me, I love the reopening plays. That's where my fund is, is sitting. I mean, that's why we're having the best Q1 in 17 years. Um, but for me, I'm looking at names like Viacom, names that were caught up in the Archegos meltdown. There's about 10 of those stocks. They're down, I think, 48% year to, uh, from their 52-week highs. Now, Viacom, 
streaming play. They did $3.6 billion in revenues in the fourth quarter. That was up over 70%. Um, stocks gone from 100 you know, down to 40 and change. Um, you know, we like that. We own, you know, I think four ADRs that were caught up in that sell-off. In um, uh, there's in music, it's in shopping, um, it's in search with Baidu, um, and so you know, I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunities in this tape because there's so much chaos between what's happened with the Archegos stuff as well as the rotation from growth to value. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, we 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 do think the. The coronavirus is here to stay, is I guess what I would say, and you need to work with that. All right. Uh, Dan, thanks for helping our viewers understand at least some of the, the theses um, around some of these names, and the confusion is something we all understand, too. Good to see you again. Thanks. Thank you very much, Carl. And now today's crowdsource. A debate has blown up on Twitter after Basecamp banned societal and political discussions on its internal platforms, following in the footsteps in a way of Coinbase, which made a similar move late last year. So what's your take? Politics on the clock or on your own time? Scan the QR code on the bottom left of your screen there. That'll take you to our Tech Check Twitter feed. Later in the hour, we'll show off some of the Internet's best takes and your responses as well. Dee? A stand against stands. Already some good responses. Coming up on the show, the CEO of Adobe, the co-founder of Lyft, and the chairman of ESPN. That's all ahead this hour. Tech Check is just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Get a gut check here on Spotify, launching podcast subscriptions this morning and pitching creators that they can make more money on their platform than they would through Apple. Spotify's Daniel Eck will join us tomorrow at 9 a.m. on Squawk on the Street. Stock, by the way, still in negative territory for the year, but it's doubled in the past year. D? Well, meantime, Carl, Lyft selling its self-driving division to Toyota for $550 million. I spoke to Lyft co-founder John Zimmer about that decision, as well as his outlook for the business post-pandemic. Take a listen. It's played out kind of like when your kids ask, are we there yet? And you say 20 minutes, and then 20 minutes later, you say 20 minutes. So uh, it's, it's happening a little slower, uh, but we're, we're still extremely confident that it's going to happen. Uh, and we're, we're excited about the news today. It allows us to focus on winning the AV transition uh, and working with partners that are excited to leverage the power of Lyft's network. We have this marketplace technology that can drive massive efficiency. Uh, you need a hybrid network of both human drivers and autonomous vehicles to manage peaks and valleys of demand. And we have fleet management services that lower, lower the cost per mile uh, of an autonomous vehicle. We have been building out quietly a fleet management, uh, tech-enabled fleet management services, part of our business, 
for multiple years. We're actually the only ones in the industry that do it. Our competition doesn't do it. And that allows you to manage down the cost per mile of, of moving an autonomous vehicle. So we feel extremely well positioned to win the AV transition. Now, part of your announcement today, you said that Lyft was going to reach adjusted EBITDA profitability by the third quarter. Um, after that, do you look at becoming profitable on a net income basis? Is that something that's important to you? Do you think it's important to investors? It's absolutely important to, to run a business uh, that, you know, the first milestone is on an adjusted EBITDA basis and, and then uh, to hit uh, broader uh, profitability uh, and do that for the long-term value of the investments we're going to be making. So then why make this the year to reach that measure of profitability? Why not go all in and capture some market share while you're at it, while people are coming back onto the platform, pull people away from your rival and just spend big? Why is profitability important this year? Why can't it be an investment year? I think investors are pretty understanding of the pandemic year that that ride sharing has just gone through. We think we can do both. We think we can take share by making smart investments uh, and building smart products. And uh, again, the, the unit economics of this business are great. We made a lot of hard decisions over the last year to, we believe, uh, more right-size the cost structure of what we do. And so we're, we're in a very good position, we believe, to both invest in the right opportunities, uh, but also demonstrate the long-term uh, value of what we're building. So will you guys spend on uh, rider discounts if the opportunity arises to capture more market share? I think the, the majority of that game is behind us. Look, there are certain, certain riders uh, that you want to uh, focus on and, and provide the right benefits to. But a more long-term approach for market share that sticks, which we've done year over year, uh, you know, taken market share, is from having a better strategy, uh, having better products, Last year, you guys said that you were exploring food delivery, a food delivery business, but this would be more of a logistics play without the consumer-facing app. Can you update us there? Sure. Same, same thing. We are continuing to work on what's uh, considered a B2B delivery platform. We're not building a consumer delivery uh, application. We're not building uh, consumer delivery technology. But there's a lot of retailers, small, medium, and large, that want... Uh, the logistics abilities that we have that that cross uh, the U.S. and, and Canada that, that we can provide. And so uh, we're working with multiple partners and we'll have more to share shortly. Okay, looking forward to it. Um, but, you know, DoorDash does something similar, a white label B2B platform. Do you anticipate, you know, are you guys going to be spending money to gain a foothold in this market? Or do you think that there's a lot of opportunity, room for several players? I think there's room for multiple players. Uh, I also think by us focusing, it's very clear to our partners uh, that we're not trying to get between them and their consumer. Uh, and that allows us to, to make, again, focused investments and partnerships. Um, and in a, in a B2B case, you're not going after millions and millions of customers. You're going after you know, 10 or 20 partners. How are you thinking about Bitcoin as a form of payment, if you're thinking about it at all? Look, we're, we're open-minded. I would uh, go to our customer. We always want to think about what the customer wants. Uh, and, and long-term, if it's something that our customers, uh, both the driver and rider, uh, feel like is right for them, it's something we will look at. 
Carl and John, going back to our discussion on food delivery, you know, I read it as a direct response to some of the backlash that we've seen to commission fees, complaints that we've heard from restaurants and lawmakers over the last year or so. Zimmer says that he wants to show their customers in this space that they will not get in the way between them and their customers. And, John, it comes as we're getting an announcement on pricing from DoorDash that similarly tries to get out of the way a little bit. Yeah, uh, Deirdre. Or at least have the option. He might be too late. Uh, Speaking of DoorDash, big news here from the leader in food delivery. I talked to Chief Operating Officer Christopher Payne of DoorDash uh, about the news that they're going to change the way they charge restaurants to deliver food. So if you want delivery as a restaurant, but you don't care about being listed in the DoorDash app, you just pay a monthly fee to uh, and, and for payments and whatnot, zero commission. All right. Now, if you want pickup only, then you pay DoorDash six percent uh, for the cash for the transaction and listing. Uh, but there's no delivery fee from there. You can pay 15, 25 or 30 percent. DoorDash is saying now, depending on how much you want DoorDash to drive traffic to your restaurant, how big you want the delivery area to be. Take a listen. We tested this through several markets across the United States and restaurants love the choice. Uh, and one of the things that was surprising to me is that the most common thing that they picked was the, the premier edition, right? And, and I think that's a reflection of how valuable that program is because it offers the entire growth package uh, of DoorDash marketing. That's pain saying that a lot of restaurants are choosing to pay 30% because they want the marketing traffic driven to the restaurant, but they get to choose now, whereas they didn't so much get a choice before. Got one more that uh, I want to play here uh, about the flexibility that restaurants are even showing. Uh, Apparently, we don't have that bite, so I'm going to talk you through it. Need to take a little bit longer here. Um, Payne told me that more restaurants are building out additional concepts in their kitchens. And with this model, they're going to be able to take and say, I got a new concept. I want to use the 30% model with that to drive awareness of the new concept, drive traffic to it. Maybe, you know, my restaurant is established. So for the main restaurant, I'm only going to do 15%. So that's important. Why it matters, DoorDash has about 50% market share in delivery. It's got more than twice the market cap uh, of Lyft. So restaurants had complained in the past, Deirdre, as you were saying, DoorDash is taking too big a cut. Here, DoorDash is saying, all right, no more prefix menu. Uh, you can have a choice. You can order a la carte. You can see this full interview with Christopher Payne to fully understand this. Check Tech Checks Twitter feed. Uh, I streamed that this morning. You can also te- uh, check Tech Checks LinkedIn page. See the full interview there, guys. Yeah, and John, it's, it was a great interview. You know, my only question is, is it enough? It feels to me, I know Christopher Payne says this isn't in response to commission caps, but I can't help but feel like it has to do with it, right? There's a number of cities looking at putting something more permanent in place, Carl. Um, and these tiers, they're still, I mean, they're a little bit better, but it seems to me an effort to sort of avoid more regulation on this front. Even 6% for pickup, why not call the restaurant? And a lot of these restaurants are and have become savvier over the last year or so and are learning how to do it themselves, perhaps without necessarily a DoorDash or an Uber um, or a Lyft in the future. Uh, it's an amazing space. I'm still, I, I'll never get over the fact that food delivery has received a quarter of all VC funding over the past decade, more than EV, second only to ride sharing, uh, wow. 23% of all VC money for 10 years 
has gone into food delivery. Closing the loop on delivery and driving, Anita initiates Uber today as a buy. Price target there, 77. Says the expansion into grocery and alcohol should help drive share quickly. Adobe's chief, Shantanuna Ryan, is going to join us after the break. Tech Check continues in a minute. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check on CNBC. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa. Julia Borston's with us, who's going to bring us the chairman of ESPN in a few minutes. In the meantime, some moderate losses on this Tuesday. NASDAQ is underperforming, along with tech and communications services. Uh, FedEx and UPS are really sitting at the top of the heap on the S&P. Tesla's among the big laggards out of earnings last night. And under the radar, Splunk, a 52-week low after a downgrade of Morgan Stanley. They go to equal weight with a target of 160 Let's get a news update and turn back to Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning, everyone. Consumer confidence has shot to its highest level since the beginning of the pandemic. The rating for April was 121.7. That was also well above forecast. Consumer expectations for the next six months are also up modestly. And the latest read of home prices show the biggest gain in nearly seven years. In February, average sale prices were up 12 percent on an annual basis. That was fueled by strong demand and, of course, tight supply. UPS shares are soaring to new record highs, up about 11 percent right now. Quarterly results blew past estimates with help from a surge in online purchases during the pandemic. And the Biden administration reportedly getting ready to propose a massive budget increase for the Internal Revenue Service. Possible hike in funding worth $80 billion over 10 years would be used to stop tax cheats and also recover unpaid taxes. Deidre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thanks for that. Call it the new Star Wars. Musk and Bezos face off in space over a NASA contract. We will break that down. Plus, want to know Kathy Wood's under-the-radar stock picks. CNBC Pro has that for you, so subscribe today. We are back in just a moment. The CEO of Adobe is right after this break. Welcome back to Tech Check. Adobe and FedEx announcing a partnership this morning that will allow retailers to beef up their e-commerce business and offer free two-day shipping, a way to compete with larger ecosystems. And joining us now exclusively on this news is Adobe's chairman and CEO, Shantanu Narayan. Shantanu, good to see you. Uh, so explain to us how this works. I mean, FedEx has ShopRunner. They have this free two-day sh- uh, shipping thing for uh, companies that are in their network and Uh, consumers who do the free sign-up. How does Adobe get into that and expand the value proposition? Well, John, first, uh, thanks for having me so much. And as you know, today is Adobe Summit. And as part of Adobe Summit, uh, we're continuing to talk about all the innovation that we're providing, whether you're a small or medium business or whether you're the largest enterprise in the world, how you can create both a, a website as well as in addition to that, enable commerce through our Magento Commerce solution. Uh, As part of that, we also uh, said that it was important for us to provide the supply chain 
and enable people to actually ship with two days. And that's where FedEx comes in. I mean, their distribution is second to none. And so the combination of Adobe with the experience platform, what we can do with Magento Commerce, what FedEx is doing is actually lighting up that last mile in terms of being able uh, for any small and medium business to say, I can now provide two-day shipping. And it's their distribution network, it's their ability with the shop runner platform uh, to you know, really uh, finalize that for every small business and be able to provide that around the world. So when a lot of people think two-day shipping, they're going to think Amazon Prime. And increasingly, we're seeing other options, whether it is through Shopify's network, whether it's something like this, uh, providing those options to small businesses so they have flexibility. So in the context of Adobe Summit and what we're seeing with reopening, talk to me about what is happening to e-commerce. Your Adobe Digital Economy Index says flight bookings in March grew 57% over February. Uh, March e-commerce was $78 billion. Buy now, pay later, uh, and shipping speed seem to play into this. Is that where you're pushing on, trying to help these businesses maintain momentum as we reopen? Well, John, we all knew that even prior to the pandemic, uh, everybody was saying, how can we have a digital presence where we can provide personalized experience for our customers? And that has just skyrocketed. And there is uh, you know, nothing that's going to uh, turn that clock back. Uh, and so what's happening is all of these businesses are saying the new reality of how they have to compete in the marketplace is not just everything to do with what they're trying to transact online, but the entire experience associated with it. And uh, when you are online and you're trying to buy something, how do they recognize your patterns? What do they understand in terms of uh, where your affinity lies? And so we're just continuing to uh, innovate around making sure that every small and medium business and the largest enterprises in the world who might have been a B2B business rather than a direct-to-consumer business can now light that up uh, with the Adobe Experience platform, as well as our customer journey analytics software. Shantanu, tell me about the momentum of demand that you're seeing from customers right now, whether it's in uh, the, the marketing platform, whether it's in experience, wanting to understand uh, how they can make the process for consumers more efficient, even customer service more efficient. What has this period particularly accelerated within Adobe's product and service set? We said, John, that you know, during the first phase of the pandemic, everybody clearly said, how do we make sure that we can focus on employee uh, health and safety? And that just continues to be paramount. But the moment you uh, finish that focus, uh, you really have to say, how are we serving customers? And so the secular demand uh, of every C-level suite is to talk about digital transformation and to talk about how digital transformation uh, can really be a tailwind rather than a headwind. And so, you know, this long-term demand for this business uh, just continues to be high. People want to understand not just all about the technology, but increasingly we're also the leaders, John, in really talking to them about people and processes and how do you create the appropriate dashboards and inspections. So I think we're way beyond the point where people uh, want to know whether they can or cannot do this in terms of the technology. Now they're really talking to us about what's the playbook? How do we create a culture that enables this to happen? How do we engage with customers? And so I would say we're in the second phase of that journey. And, you know, the leaders are there and all the other companies are trying to catch up. 
Uh, Shantanu, we talked a lot about small business. Apple uh, just released the update to iOS 14 that has some restriction on uh, data. Basically, end, end consumers get to decide, opt in to having data shared. What kind of an impact does this have on Adobe and on its customer base? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? What we are focused on, John, is for a company that's transacting business online, their first-party data. How can we make sure that we take that first-party data and provide insights? So we've actually been planning for this. We announced some great uh, innovation also about getting prepared for the cookie-less world. It's the same thing as it relates to data privacy. And what we talk about is anybody who's transacting business with Adobe, how can we capture that information for them and allow that business uh, to uh, take advantage of that. And so, you know, our strategy has always been the data that we collect on behalf of our customers belongs to our customers. Uh, it doesn't belong to Adobe. And whether it's the data privacy, whether it's cookie-less, uh, it's all about really saying, if you're a company transacting business online, do you have a really good handle mm. on who your customers are? How did they engage with you? And how are you going to take advantage of that? And so, you know, we've been preparing for this world, all of these different steps towards privacy right. actually all lead towards trust with your consumers, which is what customers have to care about. And then finally, Shantanu, I got to mention 21 years ago, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Adobe co-founder Chuck Geschke, uh, along with John Warnock, right around the same time that I first met you when, when I had recently gotten to Silicon Valley. And you have two founders there who created such a unique partnership. They would say that they never had an argument. Um, and, you know, later in their careers, they founded Adobe and they managed what so few founders managed to do to pass it along to new leadership. And the company actually gained momentum. Chuck Geschke uh, died just days ago earlier this month. Uh, condolences uh, to the Adobe family there. But I, I just welcome your reflections on the legacy of Chuck Geschke and what he has meant to Adobe, uh, to the Valley and to the world. Thank you uh, for bringing that up, John. And thank you for your very thoughtful note that you sent uh, me when you heard the news. Uh, Chuck was a legend. Uh, you know, the world today would not be what it is uh, without the impact that Chuck and John had on the written word. And I talk about, you know, uh, the wisdom of civilizations uh, was actually all in printed material. And John and Chuck brought that into the modern era. And so while their innovations, whether it was PostScript, whether it was PDF, whether it was Photoshop, uh, you know, are clearly legendary and we all understand the impact. To your point, uh, it was really about the culture that they also put in place. And, you know, what Chuck always said was that he wanted to be working for a company where people treated him like he wanted to be treated. And, you know, that simple statement has been our guiding light and our North Star uh, for the 30 plus years. And for me personally, um, you know, both the opportunity uh, that they gave me in terms of being able to lead this fantastic company and the mentorship, uh, I am eternally grateful. He, he will be missed, John. He will be really missed. Indeed, Shantanu Narayan, Chairman CEO of Adobe. Thanks for being with us on Tech Check. Thank you. Meantime, ESPN announcing some new content for ESPN Plus, part of Disney's obvious streaming strategy. Chairman uh, Jimmy Pitaro is going to join Julia after this break.
Welcome back to Tech Check. A great guest joining Julia to talk about Disney's streaming strategy. Julia, over to you. Thanks so much, Carl. Well, Disney's ESPN completed a landmark deal with the NFL and brought back the NHL, making commitments to technology across ESPN platforms. Joining us now to discuss is chairman of ESPN and sports content at Disney, Jimmy Pitaro. Jimmy, thanks so much for coming to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, Jimmy, about a month ago, ESPN and all the other networks struck this major deal with the NFL in which ABC picks up two Super Bowls, ESPN adds six games, and there's this key feature in which ESPN can now stream NFL games. How important is this move to make ESPN Plus a key part of distribution of the NFL? Uh, yeah, look, I, I'd start by saying that um, we are now firmly in the Super Bowl rotation uh, we have more playoff games. Uh, we have more Monday night football. Uh, we have, have exclusive games for ESPN plus, as you men- mentioned, we have highlights and surround programming. Uh, importantly, we have scheduling flexibility and we have long-term distribution flexibility, which was incredibly important to us, but, uh, we feel really good about the partnership that we have with the NFL and this, uh, this renewal. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, an 11 year deal, it seems impossible to imagine what the the media and television landscape is going to look like 11 years from now. But I wonder, as you put more content, both these live sports and more original content on ESPN Plus, are you concerned that could drive cord cutting and damage what's been really central to ESPN's revenue? Uh, Look, we are um, our overarching mission, Julia, is, is to serve the sports fan anytime anywhere. In fact, I'd argue it's more relevant today than it's ever been. And so if our fans want to consume ESPN through traditional means like cable or satellite, we deliver. If they want to consume digitally through our app or through our uh, website, we deliver there as well. The point is that we're successfully navigating the evolution in consumer choice. And, And we believe that we can be multiple things at the same time here and really run parallel paths. So we'll continue to acquire content for our traditional TV platforms, which are still quite valuable. And at the same time, we'll, we'll continue to build out ESPN+. And as consumers continue to gravitate towards direct-to-consumer, we have the optionality that we need and are well set up to serve them. So at what point do you think ESPN+, Plus or the direct-to-consumer streaming could become bigger than the pay TV business? Or do you think it ever will get bigger than that? Again, I'm, I'm not prepared to say one will get big, bigger than the other. You know, our focus is really on serving the sports fan. And that, that includes both direct-to-consumer and, and traditional television. Uh, and, and for three-plus years now, ESPN Plus just celebrated its third anniversary and it's going really well for us. Um, it's the, the, the strategy of running these parallel paths has been working for us. And give us a little bit of a sense of where the strategy for Disney Plus, I'm sorry, for ESPN Plus is going to go um, in, in the future. Are you going to be investing more in original content, more in sports programming? Where do you see that mix playing out? Yeah, so, so look, our, our, our priorities are direct-to-consumer, quality storytelling, yeah, innovation, and, and so in, in, terms of, in terms of really the future of ESPN Plus, 
you know, we're doing so well in terms of our original content and again, our quality storytelling. Um, you know, and, and last year during the pandemic was no exception where we brought um, so many projects uh, to life. And then if you fast forward to today, if you look at what's actually happening on ESPN Plus right now, we have shows like Peyton's Places, Detail, Stephen A's World, all performing really well. And I'd also call out that ESPN Plus is the exclusive home for all 30 for 30s, which has really been a marquee um, product for us. Uh, and, and if you want all 30 for 30s, uh, the only place where you can get them is ESPN Plus. But we have some really exciting things coming up for that platform. We have the Tom Brady series, Man in the Arena, which will explore each of his 10 Super Bowls. Uh, and I also have some news for you today, Julia. So later this year, our next 30 for 30 film will premiere on ESPN+. Plus. It, it will also then have a linear run, but it will premiere on ESPN+, Plus and it chronicles the story of the 86 Mets. And it's called Once Upon a Time in Queens, and it will be a deep dive into the story of that iconic championship team. And it, it'll feature some of the top players, of course, like Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, yeah. Lenny Dykstra. <laughs> And Jimmy Kimmel yeah. is actually the executive producer on this one. <laughs> I, I have to ask, because there's been so much conversation about the increase in sports gambling. How is that going to impact your business? Is that a huge opportunity for ESPN going forward? Yeah, look, for some time now, we've recognized that, that sports betting has become endemic to the overall sports fan experience and that there's a growing expectation from our fans that sports destinations will, will offer seamless betting experiences. And we've also recognized that this is a really highly engaged audience. And as a result of that, our investment in the space over the past few years has really evolved. And fast forward to today, and sports betting content is a strong and vibrant part of ESPN across platforms. But the bottom line is we believe sports betting presents new growth opportunities for us to expand our brand, to expand our audience, and increase fan engagement. Well, Jimmy, we hope you'll come back and talk to us more about that as well as the NHL. And then we'll have to see what happens with the uh, NFL Sunday tickets. So thanks for joining us. We hope you'll be back very soon. Jimmy Pitaro, Chairman of Sports and ESPN at Disney. Thank you. Great insight. And a reminder, as we head to break, CNBC's Evolve Global Summit is coming up. It takes place Wednesday, June 16th and features CEOs of Carnival, Dick's Sporting Goods, Coca-Cola, Adidas, and more. Register now and you can learn more at CNBC.com slash Evolve. The latest storyline in Star Wars unfolding last night. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos taking aim at one another. Bezos's Blue Origin filed a complaint against NASA, challenging the award of a $3 billion moon lander contract to Musk's SpaceX. NASA originally signaled multiple companies would participate in building lunar landers aimed at bringing astronauts to the moon. So many did find it surprising when the contract went solely to SpaceX. NASA now says... The choice to only pick one company was due to lower-than-expected funding. Blue Origin telling CNBC the awarded contract is, quote, flawed and that NASA, quote, moved the goalposts at the last minute. Musk 
as he does, firing back on Twitter, saying the reason Bezos didn't get the contract is because he, quote, can't get it up in brackets to orbit, LOL. Bezos and Musk not known to hold back, Carl, when it comes to fighting for their businesses. So it will be interesting to see how this one continues to play out. Yeah, we've seen corporate trash talk in so many industries, John. Uh, the soda wars, obviously, Boeing, Airbus. But this is literally about going to the moon. Uh, those are big spoils, and we can't wait to see what happens with it. We'll take a break here. One more look ahead uh, when we come back to tonight's big earnings in tech on both Google and Microsoft. That's coming up next. And the best answers to today's crowdsource on Basecamp. Tech Check's back in a minute. Let's get back to crowdsource. We asked for your thoughts on startup Basecamp's decision to ban political conversation at work. First, here are a few early reactions to the policy from yesterday. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong applauded the decision, saying it takes courage in these times. He caught heat for setting up a similar no-politics-at-work policy last year. Meanwhile, a Basecamp employee saying, I've worked at Basecamp for a long time. I don't agree with the changes announced today, and I'm sad and upset. And now, your thoughts. One viewer agreeing with this policy, saying political disagreements between co-workers, quote, can lead to animosity, for sure. Basecamp, by the way, says employees can engage with politics on social media and elsewhere, just not on workplace communication platforms. Carl? Yep. Uh, corporate policies, everybody's got to hammer them out individually, depending on the culture. Uh, buckle up for tonight, guys, as we get ready for uh, some big tech earnings, and we'll have a lot to chew on tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 